Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. All right. So this is going to be kind of a, I think, a somewhat different show today. I guess they're all different. Uh, but this has been a weird week anyway. I've been out down with the bugs since Monday night. Uh, but I dragged myself in here today because I do feel this is a very important show to do. And it's going to be a little controversial at times, uh, but that's good, too. So let me set the stage a little. Actually, last June, you've probably already forgotten it by now, a venture capitalist, a multi-multi-billionaire named Nick Hanauer, wrote a much-discussed piece it was in Politico magazine about what he saw coming. I see pitchforks, he wrote. Some inequality is intrinsic to any high-functioning capitalist economy. The problem is that inequality is at historically high levels and getting worse every day. Our country is rapidly becoming less a capitalist society and more a feudal society. Again, this is Nick Hanauer, a multi-billion dollar venture capitalist writing. If we don't do something to fix the glaring inequalities in this economy, the pitchforks are going to come for us. No society can sustain this rising inequality. In fact, there is no example in human history where wealth accumulated like this and the pitchforks didn't eventually come out. So this article came out. It made for a few days of talk fodder, and then it basically disappeared. But at the same time, the journalist-turned-activist Chris Hedges, he'd been basically writing the same thing for a while. In 2013, he wrote, in words that appear nearly verbatim in his new book, Wages of Rebellion, no one knows where or when the eruption will take place. No one knows the form it will take. But it is certain now that a popular revolt is coming. The refusal by the corporate state to address even the minimal grievances of the citizenry, along with the abject failure to remedy the mounting state repression, the chronic unemployment and underemployment, the massive debt peonage that is crippling more than half of Americans, and the loss of hope and widespread despair means that blowback is inevitable. So, with all that, um, well, I think maybe sort of part of one of his uncertainties, Chris Hedges' uncertainties, uh, has been made a little bit more certain. He says no one knows where or when the eruption will take place. Well, we've seen eruptions take place around America recently. We've seen them in Ferguson. We've seen them most recently uh, in Baltimore. And one of the things that I've noticed, is, particularly in the case of Baltimore, is that people in positions of responsibility feel some incumbency to condemn things when things get rough, right? When there's destruction of property, when when there's what we call rioting, uh, everybody, starting with the president, has to say, well, that's the wrong way to do this. Um, And and I'm not saying that they're wrong. I'm not disagreeing with them. But I'm I'm also realizing that Americans really do love uprisings as long as they happen in China, Egypt, or 1776. What's so crazy about uprisings when they happen right now somewhere near us? So I wanted to do a show that would analyze or at least talk about our attitude toward that. Uh, how we really feel about popular uprisings, about things that look like the stirrings of revolt or rebellion. So, And then I was additionally prompted when Jamil Ragland, who's here with me today, uh, a young resident and writer in Hartford, wrote a piece which you may have seen uh, in the Hartford Current a couple of Sundays ago, saying basically that what happened in Baltimore, the kind of unrest that you saw in Baltimore, can happen here. And so, Jamil, um, you begin by saying that you were both 
um, let's see, uh, see if I can actually find the sentence. But you say that you know you sort of had mixed reactions. You were both a little unsettled, but also a little proud when you saw people kind of go to the streets in Baltimore. And that was the first sentence of your piece. And it was kind of a, a little bit of a it was a provocative first sentence, right? It was the kind of first sentence that could, in fact, get you some blowback. And so explain, why did you begin the piece that particular way? Why did you use the word proud? Thank you for having me on, Colin. Sure. Um, first, I want to say in that piece that I am proud of the people in Baltimore, and I'm proud of the people in Ferguson, and I'm proud of the people in New York who have come together and decided to protest against criminal, um, against police brutality, against the taking of black life in America. And I'm extremely proud of that. The only hesitation I have regarding those demonstrations, regarding those uprisings, is that the response to those types of demonstrations and uprisings is usually negative and violent without the kind of popular support that comes from other corners in America that oftentimes we see what we saw in Baltimore. The National Guard comes out, a curfew is imposed, and people um, start basically getting their skulls cracked when these uprisings happen. And that was my only real sense of foreboding was that the um, uprising in Baltimore as it occurred was going to um, have the same type of reaction to what we saw in Ferguson, what we've seen in popular uprisings throughout American history, that unless there's these uprisings are on the right side or if they've been mythologized after the fact, that the usual response at the moment is to put this down as quickly as possible and put this down and sometimes in a violent way. And that was what I was concerned about. Um, obviously, and looking at your piece, well, actually, let me read a little bit of your piece. I do not condemn the actions in Baltimore. African-Americans have been the victims of state-sponsored violence since before there was even a state. Slavery, segregation, redlining, and deindustrialization have formed a legacy upon which the current racism and violence are built and inflicted upon black people across the nation. What is happening in Baltimore and happened in New York City and Ferguson is the rage and sorrow of a people who have been harassed and killed for centuries, finally boiling over. It seems that no amount of enlightened discussion or impassioned pleas can prevent the state from executing us, whether it's an overwhelmingly biased capital punishment system or the knee-jerk response of a police officer. Um, and then you go on to say that this really could happen in Hartford. We should emphasize it has happened in Hartford, 68, 69, 70. We had uh, uprisings. We had unrest. We had what were called riots at the time. Um, what makes you think that it could happen in Hartford? I mean, apart from the things that I just read. I think that, as you mentioned earlier, um, as those writers have said before, that this is not specifically and exclusively a response to police violence. This is a response to conditions in cities and even smaller towns all across America where black and brown people feel that they've been marginalized or excuse me, not, not feel that they've been marginalized, have been marginalized, have been had opportunities taken away from them, have been incarcerated at rates, have been killed at rates, suffer with all sorts of chronic disease that are endemic to poverty and not having the same opportunities as other people. Hartford itself has a, um, according to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, has an unemployment rate that's double the national average. When you have that sort of conditions, when you have people that are out of work and don't have the means to take care of themselves, you get the type of anger, you get the type of hopelessness that leads to the types of uprisings you see across the country, the types of uprisings that Chris Hedges and others have been talking about. In the case of Baltimore and Ferguson, these sparks have been police brutality, but the concerns and the issues that the um, populations are bringing up go far beyond that. They go into 
housing, they go into education, they go into jobs, they go into all those things, all these conditions that lead people to then be targeted by the police. It's kind of a policing of poverty that happens. And once that once that impoverished population is formed, the police kind of zero in on it and kind of try to keep it in check with these violent and and um, heavy handed tactics. Those that aspect of it hasn't come to Hartford yet. And, you know, but we've seen a couple of times that there have been some confrontations between civilians and police. There was the incident last summer when the young man was tased on Albany Avenue. There was an incident earlier this year um, at the Burger King that these incidents are going to happen. It's only a matter of time before something happens between a police officer and uh, a citizen. When you have the backdrop to everything that we've talked about already here in Hartford, those are the types of things that then explode out and you get the types of um, uprising you had here in Hartford in the late 60s, the types of uprising you're seeing around the city now. Um, Minneapolis is dealing with this right now, too, with um, the um, with the the marches that are happening in Minneapolis right now in response to the case that just happened there where there were no charges pressed. And you have to realize that this is not just a response to this young man being killed. This is a response to all the conditions that led to that young man being killed and all the conditions that everyone around him also have to deal with. Now, there's a difference between saying what you've said so far in your piece, um, that in some ways you were proud to see people get in the streets and protest in Baltimore and that you don't condemn their actions. There's a difference between saying that and saying it needs to happen. It's the only way you'll ever get heard. Do you feel as though it kind of needs to happen, that 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 something beyond peaceful protest, nonviolent protest, calls for more dialogue. Do you feel as though something beyond that has to happen, or is there still room to to work some of this stuff out in a different way? I increasingly feel like it does have to happen because we're seeing that even having black and brown people in positions of power don't guarantee anything. Having a black president doesn't guarantee anything. Having two black attorney generals hasn't guaranteed anything. Having black police chiefs, having black district attorneys, having black prosecutors, those things aren't guaranteeing safety. Those things aren't guaranteeing that the law is working on the side of black and brown people all across America, that is protecting poor people. Those things aren't happening. And for whatever reason it is, you know, I tend to believe that sometimes the types of people that end up in these positions are the types that are willing to do what it takes to get to those positions and aren't necessarily going to, you know, President Obama made it very clear that he was not the president of black America. Well, what does that leave for black America then? And what does it leave for the rest of um, other um, poor and brown people too? So when we don't have the outlet through these types of um, official channels, We've seen in Baltimore that there have been attempts to get the murder charges even dropped from that from uh, from that prosecution, that a black uh, prosecutor brought the charges and they're trying to find a way to even get those taken off. When we don't have a way to to redress these issues through the normal um, channels, through the proper channels, where else is it supposed to go? And it goes into the streets and it goes into into uprisings and without some kind of response from the power brokers, um, without some sort of response from the people who make the policy, these are things that are going to happen. These are things that need to happen because it seems to be the only way that we get any kind of redress for what we've what we're seeking. Even in Ferguson, even after everything that happened there, there still were no charges. Eric, um, excuse me, um, Eric Garner in New York. We had the coroner's report. We had the videotape, and we still couldn't even get an indictment in that case. What other option is there? 
Um, as we go along here, by the way, if you want to be part of the conversation, we're live here in the afternoon. The number is 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. You may tweet us at WNPR. Colin, our tweet master, Greg Hill, is here. So, you know, I mean, I've known you, I think, for a couple of years now. I don't know you well. Uh, I knew right away when I met you, you're very smart, you're very articulate. Um, you're saying stuff right now that is some people are going to really object to, right? I mean, saying it needs to happen and it has to happen. Do you feel in general that you're putting yourself, I mean, your reputation, I don't know, your future employability, anything like that at risk by speaking as strongly as you are right now? It's been actually very interesting to me because I felt like I've said some pretty controversial or strong things in the past and there hasn't necessarily been a negative blowback to those things. I think that there's an audience for the things that I'm saying right now that is receptive to what I'm saying. There are all these people that disagree, and, you know, in any society there will be differences of opinion, and I think that's important. But I do think that, um, I do think that at least in my experience, there hasn't been the negative blowback to those things. And um, it's it's really been kind of pleasant for me, obviously, but mm-hmm. also— I do think that it's demonstrative of the fact that there are people who have these same sentiments. And what I found generally that when, when I say things like this is that people who think similarly reach out to me and say, hey, I agree with that. Hey, let's talk some more. And I've met a lot of really great people in the years that I've been talking and writing in Hartford. And there's been not so much negativity that might change. And I hope it doesn't. But I feel like at the least, you know, there are people out there in the streets that are risking, you know, risking attack, risking being maced, risking being arrested, putting their lives at risk when they go out to these types of protests, when they show up in these places. At the very least, I can risk an angry letter in the Hartford Current. Yes, you can. Um yeah, we're, we're going to bring in two other guests in just a second. Although, I, And this is something I'm going to discuss with them, too. But I'll throw it out to you now just to come back to the word foreboding that you had. So the, you said the word foreboding had to do with the fact that when things reach a certain level uh, in urban unrest, then the government feels as though it has license, essentially, to come in and, and repress uh, the unrest. So, And some people, some theorists, even Chris Hedges to a certain point, a certain degree, says that's the great argument for nonviolent protest, right, is that it's so much easier to put down anything that resembles violent protest. And usually you can take a lot of the public with you when you do it. It's like, look what they're doing right now. They're busting up a CVS. Um, you know, some old lady just got knocked over. Um, we've got to call it the National Guard. We've got to do this. Um, that, that That's the argument against anything that resembles a a true revolt. How do you respond to that? I respond with some of the images that we've seen from the civil rights marches of the 1960s, that marching, you know, they called it Bloody Sunday for a reason. Mm. And the response of the state and the response of those who want to keep things the way they are is always going to be violent and outsized. And it's not a matter of provocation. It's not a matter of um, acting right to get the right kind of response they're going to do what they're going to do. And in response, we have to be ready to protect ourselves and be ready to do what we need to do in those cases to get the type of change that we're looking for, to get the type of response that we're looking for. And if nonviolent, pro- if nonviolent protests could get those results, then we wouldn't be having this conversation because we've done decades in, of nonviolent protests. We've had marches. We've had pro- boycotts. We've had letters to the editor. We've had conversations, and those things have still led to a place where black and brown people are, you know, 
disproportionately targeted by police and killed by police and incarcerated and placed into these poor failing schools, you know, the conversations aren't aren't working and not helping. So if the next step needs to be taken, that's that's what we're seeing right now. That next step is being taken. Are the people who are in power paying attention to that right now? We're talking to writer Jamil Raglan. Uh, let me grab a call here from Derek in Windsor. Hi, Derek. Derek, uh, uh, Colin, um, thank you for taking my call, Colin. Your guest here is right on, right on. Uh, what you said at the outset also is right on, Colin. Let me just say something, Colin, if you give me a few seconds. Sure. If you look in South Africa, uh, um, before I say that, the system here in America is rigged against blacks. In a nutshell, I don't care how you try to split it and size it up. I was listening to a program just before yours, Colin, and you know what the gentleman said? The, the wealth gap between blacks and whites, it's 5% black, and everybody knows wherever the wealth is, that's where the power is. And if the black man is so poor, that means he is disabled. It's a lot of things that he's not going to be able to do. And I was saying South Africa, if you look at South Africa, during the, the apartheid system, it was a white, white... Um, president and the blacks were still under oppression and even when you put black mandela there it, i think it's probably worse or what i'm trying to say wherever the money is and most of the blacks in south africa they have money just like here in america and you see the condition in south africa right here in america Colin. We can talk till the cows come home, but it's just going to be another set of talking. And that's what I want to say, Colin. All right, Derek, thanks for your call. We're going to take a quick break here. We're going to come back. We've got two more guests who will become part of the conversation. So let's do that. We'll be back in just a second. This is your life. It ain't no secret. It ain't no secret. No secret, my friend. You can't kill just for living in your American All right, we're back. Um, and we're, what we're talking about is, in fact, the American attitude towards uprisings, um, how we feel about it. Uh, my little saying over the last three or four weeks has been Americans love uprisings as long as they happen in China, Egypt, or 1776. Uh, with me right now is Jamil Raglan. He's a resident of Hartford uh, and a writer. He wrote an op-ed piece uh, in the Sunday paper uh, a couple of weeks ago um, articulating some of his views about unrest in Baltimore and some of the other cities in America that have reacted uh, to police violence and death by police among African Americans. We're going to add two new voices to the uh, conversation now. Ashley Howard is an assistant professor of history at Loyola, Loyola University in New Orleans uh, complete, uh, and uh, is the author of um, Prairie Fires, Race, Class, Gender, and the Midwest in the 1960s, Urban Rebellions. Uh, Eric Patterson is the dean and associate professor of Robertson School of Government, Regent University, and research fellow at Georgetown's Berkeley Center for Religion, Peace, and World Affairs. Um, I'm going to begin with you, Ashley Howard. Uh, we've been talking a little bit already uh, about similarities and differences between urban unrest in, in 68, 69, 70, uh, and what's going on now. How much does 2015 look to you uh, like 
the period that you studied. Actually, it was a little bit more between 65 and 68, I think, in your case. That's true. I mean, in many ways, there are very clear parallels that you see. You see folks upset about a specific incident of police brutality, but in large, it's in response to ongoing conditions in the black American experience around jobs, around disenfranchisement, around housing. So it looks very similar in that way. I think some key differences that I've noticed between the two events are as follows. There's not as much um, attention being paid to a mainstream rights movement as we saw uh, in the 1960s. You know, the national civil rights movement really got started in mass effect in 1955. And so by the time we get to 65, 66, et cetera, the right for African-Americans to have full citizenship in this country is really on the minds and hearts of many Americans. And I think in today, people have been agitating at the local level, at the regional level, and at sometimes at the national level. But by and large, these larger protests um, have gone unnoticed by the major American public. So that's the first thing I've noticed a difference. And the second thing, which I think is truly a huge uh, game changer in these most recent uprisings, is the advent of social media. And what social media has done is really taken these instances which had been localized and oftentimes personally internalized. It was my fault that I was doing this. I deserve what was happening. This just happened to me in my city. And through social media, this becomes part of a national context. It becomes really part of a national political vocabulary where people understand that their personal experiences with the police are part of a larger systemic and endemic issue. Um, you know, I'd like to go back to the first thing that you said and, and explore it a little bit, too. And, um, you know, so from 65 to 68, um, as you say, there there's a kind of a clear set, a clear set of goals on the minds of people who are involved in, in protest, uh, in, in unrest. And then starting maybe 68, 69, 70, it, it's, there's still unrest, but a lot of it has to do with the assassination of Dr. King. Um, some of it's also joined in by white protesters who are unhappy with things that the Nixon uh, administration is doing in Southeast Asia. Uh, there's sort of more of a mass protest. But, you know, go, going back to that early, the, that earlier time, is that a big, maybe that's a difference worth emphasizing a little bit between then and now. I feel as though now the goal may be a little less clear. In other words, uh, you know, the the New York Times uh, last Sunday had a cover story about the new civil rights movement. I think, I think the cover said, stop killing us, um, which is really different from full citizenship somehow. No, certainly. And in some ways, it's a different time in which activists are participating in these types of demonstrations. And so it's not as clear-cut as some of these civil rights issues of the 1960s. People could very easily point to redlining. They could very easily uh, point to certain establishments where they were not adding, you know, rights for African Americans or encouraging African Americans to patronize there. What we see now is a bit more nebulous, that we can point to these statistics of African Americans being targeted by police, stop and frisk procedures, uh, the rise of mass incarceration in this nation. However, there, due to this kind of colorblind racial ideology that we are very much immersed in right now, that because we have a black police, or excuse me, a black president, and as your previous guest was saying, a black attorney general, a black mayor, etc., racism is over, and the people who are getting caught up in the system are doing it through their own negligence and through their own disregard of laws. That's one shift, but I think it's really important to note 
in the 1960s, many of the uprisings that took place were in the urban north. And so these kind of major milestones in African-American history, such as the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, while important, had really a limited immediate effect in these urban northern centers that didn't have this kind of voracious and very uh, in-your-face Jim Crow that we see south of the Mason-Dixon line. And so what we see happening in the 1960s rebellions, particularly in the grievances that participants are putting forth, is that they're angry at the lack of opportunity for them to fully participate in the American dream. They want job training. They want an end to redlining. They want police review boards. All of these very tangible things that they can see. In that, this discourse is finally becoming kind of mainstreamed and part of the national narrative, I think we are seeing the beginnings of a movement. And oftentimes at the beginning of the movement, the goals aren't as clear-cut with discrete steps to achieve them. So something very simple as stop killing black people can actually have um, outlets in many different ways. I think about in Chicago the past couple of weeks how that um, people who were victims of police brutality under Burgess have now received reparations. That's a part of this Black Lives Matter, stop killing black people, in a very tangible way. And because these events, because these crimes have largely been decentralized, I expect for the next couple of years, the movements to bring and alleviate some of these problems will also be decentralized and localized. I want to get Eric Patterson into this conversation in just a second, but um, Ashley Howard, one more question before we uh, transition to him a little bit or get him into our circle anyway. Um, you know, the President Obama was pretty emphatic in, in saying, kind of, uh-uh, not like that, you know? In other words, at a certain point uh, in Baltimore uh, or watching Baltimore, he said, no, although that's never justified, you can't do that. Um, and I wonder whether you think he would have said the same thing if he were 65 years old. In other words, you know, I mean, he's of an age where he didn't really live through, he didn't at all live through the period that you're talking about. He's kind of never seen it before, never seen it wearing any kind of mantle of justification. Um, I, I wonder if you think he would have spoken differently. I, I think uh, it really depends on a lot of things that I wouldn't tie directly to President Obama's age. I think for me, what I've seen in my research is people see uprisings, collective violence, uh, revolts as a viable political op option only when they feel that they have been closed out of every other um, area for political redress. And so I think President Obama very much still believes in the sense of efficacy of the system, believes that the, through the prop, proper channels these things can happen. I, I think really a great local example for you uh, was the op-ed that Doug Glanville wrote in The Atlantic last week mm -hmm. or when he was you know, uh, shoveling while black. And it shows that due to the position, due to his um, wife's position, due to the neighborhood that they live in, they actually had a sense of opportunity to address this grievance that he, that he faced. They had a mayor on their block. They had a governor on their block. They had lawyer friends. And so he was able to negotiate that wrong that he received in a way that speaks to the traditions of America, and that is because of his class and educational privilege. And so what I see happening in places like Baltimore and Ferguson, these are people who feel constantly on the margins, constantly without a voice or even a, a stake in the extant systems of justice in America, and that's why they're focusing 
on this particular type of tactic for political redress. Let me get Eric Patterson into this conversation, Dean and Associate Professor at Robertson School of Government, a Regent University, and Research Fellow at Georgetown's Berkeley Center for Religion, Peace, and World Affairs. So, you know, we've been sort of... um, not dancing around, but walking straight at this question uh, so far of, you know, at what point when you can't achieve redress uh, for wrongs committed against you through the normal channels, at what point um, does it become permissible and maybe even mandated that um, that you express yourself in a different way, in a more forceful way, uh, in the form of, of unrest or uprisings or revolt? Um, and it's it's you know it's a difficult thing to establish, but we do at least have something that we can look back on, and that's the just war doctrine, which maybe isn't exactly designed for these situations, but it's you know Saint Augustine and just ad bello and just in bello. I guess we're talking about just ad bello right now. So give us a sense of that. I mean, in terms of what kind of philosophical framework we can have for looking at this, what have we got to work with here? Colin, thanks for having me today. Sure. And my greetings to the to the two other speakers. I've enjoyed hearing what they had to say. You know, the just war framework, just like you said, really begins uh, with this notion of when is it ethical to employ force? And it really starts with three categories. Force would be used by a legitimate political authority on behalf of a just cause, usually somewhat defensive in nature, and with right intention. And all three of those matter. The difference between unbridled violence, which is outside of the force used by, say, law enforcement authorities is, again, the sanction of the government or a political authority, a just cause. Augustine said a just cause was to prevent wrong, to punish wrongdoers, or to right a past wrong. And that intention matters, that uh, the, the, the purpose of this, the intentionality, that's something that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. talked about. Uh, intentionality really matters when it comes to whether it's direct action or civil disobedience or employing force. So this is a really interesting area. And so, Jamil, um, you've been listening to both of these guests. And, and you know, this inter- question of intentionality touches back to what Ashley was saying about 65 to 68, where the intentions are kind of clear, right? We want full civil status within this society. Um, do you think in the intentions are clear and think intentionality is, is clear in this situation? Is it kind of obvious what everybody is trying to do? I think <clears throat> I think at least for the protesters, the intentions are clear. Um, as Ashley pointed out, we kind of live in like this nebulous era right now where it's kind of hard to set down a really clear, distinct goal or line of what you're trying to accomplish. When you're saying you're trying to, you know, prevent the deaths of black and br- black and brown people by the at the hands of the police, that's a goal. But how do you define success in that goal? How do you define, you know, policy steps or how do you define laws or how do you define actual things that can be done to accomplish that goal? And it's difficult so I think that it becomes really hard to to clearly define the the steps you take because it's very hard to define the problem. Well, the problem is racism. Okay. The problem is classism. Okay. But how do we actually define those things in a way that actually you can say, okay, I intend to prevent this negative outcome this way because you can't really point to redlining anymore. As redlining as a practice, as we are told, is uh, obsolete. But we still have very, very obvious you know, racial segregation in places all over America, particularly in the greater Hartford area, where some towns are 90, 95% white 
and you have a city like Hartford, which is, you know, overwhelmingly black and brown. There may be no actual law anymore that prevents black and brown people from moving out to those places, but there are all sorts of social, cultural, and economic um, realities that prevent that. How do you define those types of things, and how do you say these are the clear steps we take towards that? How do you define the types of um, educational disparities you see in Hartford where we have, you know, increasingly a two-tiered system of really high-performing magnet schools. I believe there were actually a couple of magnet schools that were on the um, the top 10. There was a, a list released earlier this week of the top 20 high schools in, um, in in Connecticut, and a couple of the greater Hartford area magnet schools were on that list, while at the same time Clark School has been closed due to, you know, poison being found in the building. How do you define those things and say there's this clear policy right here that will solve this problem? So without those, without in, in the nebulous era that we exist in right now is very, very hard to say A, B, C will lead to D, but the intentions are there that we want these types of things redressed. We're just not sure how to define them in a way that people won't react negatively to. Dan Malloy yesterday got a huge blowback from the Republican Republicans in um, the, the state house because he dared to suggest that, you know, that, um, crim- the way that drug crimes are treated in, in Connecticut have racial implications. Well, duh, but, you know, because he dared to suggest that everyone got up in arms and indignant about a reality that is true. So even when you do try to define the terms, you get pushed back. So it's really difficult. You know, Eric Patterson, I want to come back to a, quest- a question of authority. All right. So anytime there's push back against the government, there's a question of authority. So in in the late 18th century here in the United States, um, a lot of this really was about um, people informed by the thinking of John Locke saying, no, you know what? They really don't have any authority over us. Their authority isn't legitimate. We have the capacity to ask questions uh, and, we have the, and to decide that things are wrong. Uh, and that's all contained in the Declaration of Independence, right? The wording of it's right there, this kind of Lockean insistence that, no, that's not where authority resides. It doesn't reside with kings. It resides with us uh, and with God and you know, with the, the natural apprehensions that God has given us. You know, here in this country, as we thrash these things out, one thing that gets said a lot is, well, we're a government of laws. Uh, And so that in in situations like this, um, uprisings and and the kinds of um, dissatisfactions that Jamil is is expressing right now kind of bump up against that, right? That the the laws aren't working, so they don't have as much authority. I don't know. Can you comment on that at all? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, you brought up the American War for Independence, and it does provide kind of an example on this. So let me just mention that as part of this answer, and that is, the you're right, the Declaration of Independence makes some bold, important claims. But that was a year after a similar declaration had been made, and it was the last of a series of about a dozen declarations made by the states and by the first and then the second Constitutional Congress. A year earlier, in July of 1775, the Continental Congress wrote a, one of its last declarations to London. It was called the Declaration of Rights and Grievances of the United Colonies. And this is important because it, it spells out what they were doing and why, and it answers this question of legitimacy. First of all, they, they say what their grievances are. London has been, taking our, it has been confiscating our property. Our, we've lost trial by jury. People who are sent to, uh, who go before a jury are taken onto a ship. Instead of a jury, they're going to an admiralty court on a ship and being tried by a Navy officer off land. 
the legislature in, had been suspended. Commerce had been interdicted. In other words, there was a naval blockade of Boston. There had been two attacks by the Redcoats, one in Virginia, that's poorly known, and then, of course, the so-called shot heard around the world, which happened in April of 1775, 14 months before the Declaration of Independence. The colonial charters had been abrogated for the colonies, and Redcoats who had killed US, uh, the colonials were being taken out of the country for trial, not trial here. And then, of course, the courting of troops in private homes and on private property against people's wishes. So all of these, this is the context from 1765 on. It's 10 years till you get to 1775, and they're still writing letters and embassies to London arguing for their rights. And it isn't until after two bloody attacks that the, what becomes the War of Independence starts. So it's very late in the game. And the argument about authority that they were making is, all the way to 1775, we're Englishmen. We want the rights that all Englishmen have. We respect the authority of London. We don't want to throw the law out the window. But if you continue down this path, we have lower levels of authority. We have our provincial governments, the colonial governments like Virginia and Massachusetts, and we have our local assemblies, and they're, they are the ones who represent us in terms of the rule of law. And that's how the colonists went about this. They, they had legitimate authorities. It was those intermediate levels that superseded the tyranny of London. You know, and Ashley Howard, when you think about that, and then you think about um, the rebellion of 65 to 68 here in this country, does it seem more similar or more different? I mean, it's, in some ways, it seems more like, no, we want a few new laws, and we want you to follow the laws you have already, but we're not actually looking to restructure authority. I would, I would actually agree with that. I think this is the kind of the long, hot summers, as is often referred to, this period of great rebellions from 65 to 68. I position this as a transition moment between the civil rights movement, where we have nonviolent direct action, full citizenship, and the black power movement, where you see increased nationalism and black autonomy. And so in these intervening three years, what I argue is you see African Americans seeing the institutions in their community and wanting to have a voice and a say in this. I think the, the best example of this comes in the aftermath of the uprisings. People are asking for a police review board in which black citizens sit on. And so they're saying the way that the system works is not working right now. We want to amend it. We want to fix it. We want to be a part of it. And when this largely fails by the time we get to 68, you see people embracing a far more muscular form of black power because they realize, uh, in their opinion, that there's no longer a place in America for black. All right, we're going to grab a, a quick break. We're going to come back with our final segment here, uh, so hang with us. But I know a change won't come. <laughs> 
All right. We may have just lost the audio on our thank you. So should I just say our thank yous then? Uh, we'd like to thank uh, Kyone Wolf, who's on the board today. Betsy Kaplan is the person who produced this show. I'm assuming this Kelsey Bissell is in there somewhere answering telephones. Yes, uh, Kelsey Bissell's answering telephones. Greg Hill is our tweet master at WNPR Colin. Tomorrow on the show, we will change gears uh, a little bit from the heavy to the light, I guess. Uh, we're going to do a very special episode of The Nose where we're going to talk about David Letterman as he gets ready to retire. And uh, guest producer Jonathan McNichol has put together a pretty amazing lineup of Letterman scholars and former Letterman writers, kind of TV's original Dadaist maybe. But uh, we're on a more serious plane right now talking about uh, American attitudes towards uprisings, uh, towards unrest. Uh, and uh, we've got a terrific guest here in studio. Jamil Raglan uh, is a resident of Hartford and a writer who wrote about this in The Current a couple of weeks ago. Eric Patterson, a dean and associate professor at Robertson School of Government, Regent University, and research fellow at Georgetown's Berkeley Center for Religion, Peace, and World Affairs. Ashley Howard, an assistant professor of history at Loyola University, uh, New Orleans. All right, so I'm going to grab a quick call. We've got a lot of calls coming in here, and I'm I'm going to apologize for any that I can't get to, but I can get to John in Burlington. Hi, John, you're on the air. Hey, Colin. Uh, regarding the unrest in this country, your, your female guest, I was encouraged when I heard class, the word class was in the title of her book, and then the rest, the whole 10 minutes after that was about race. That my, my point is, if, if, if black activists can't kind of swallow hard, even if it's distasteful, and include, this has become more of a class thing. They have to include, it has to become a class issue you know, the plutocracy that this country is becoming. You know, the people at the top of it rather see a bucket of crabs uh, that are pulling each other down than a bucket of crabs that are all getting out together. I, I just think they have to, you have to move it ahead now past just the black thing. Stop making these little separations. And it has to, this is a culture. You know, this is a class thing. All right. Uh, you know, it's it's a point I wanted to get to anyway. And so, uh, Ashley Howard, since you mentioned you, I'll I'll have you go first. But I mean, and this is kind of an argument that Chris Hedges is making in his book now, too, right, that there are problems that are specific to black Americans. Uh, and we've talked a lot about them. Jamil, I think, has done a very good job of enumerating them. And then there are problems that are not specific to black Americans, and they range from a kind of uh, economic disempowerment, uh, burdens by debts, surveillance by the NSA, a leadership that refuses to do anything about climate change, even though it's uh, uh, the imperilment of people is becoming more and more obvious. You know, the Sandy was the so-called East Coast Katrina. I mean, there's sort of a lot of reasons why Americans in general might feel as though the political system isn't redressing their wrongs. So respond to what uh, John the caller said. Well, I think you can never separate race and class from this country because the two are so intimately tied together they have a multiplicative effect, um, an effect on one another. So, yes, if you are an African-American and you're middle class, that does, or upper middle class, that does give you some privileges compared to an African-American who is working class or working poor, but it does not mitigate the fact that you're still black in this country. I think, again, Henry Louis Gates arrested on his own front porch is evidence that we can't really escape um, our race. However, one thing that I do think um, we need to think about is dismantling this notion of a homogenous black hole and that people that are in certain class positions are going to have different grievances and different ways to address those grievances than others. And 
they are all intersecting in a way. If we think about the rise of uh, the police state, not only are African Americans getting caught up in it, but undocumented uh, migrants are getting caught up in this. You see this with ice holds in many jails. You see this around people who are impoverished and can't pay their fines to get out. So they're serving jail time this way, which prevents them from getting a job and on and on and on. So class is certainly a factor, but we cannot discount the way that race continues to play a real and potent uh, role in people's lives today. Um, Eric Patterson, when you look at this, I mean, one of the questions I, I, I always have is, well, revolts, rebellions, they're usually put down uh, and, you know, there there may be gains made, but they're usually kind of squashed somehow. And it's easier to put down a, re- a rebellion that basically concerns 14 percent of the population while the rest of them watch it on CNN. Um, so I, once again, I'll go back to John's question. Is it a mistake to segregate the black part of American discontent? I think that this is a tough question. When it comes to this issue, Ashley said something earlier that I thought was wise, and that is people often take these steps when they don't think that they can find any form of redress. But there really are two different ways that groups, whether it's by race or it's by class, and I think that he's right that often class plays a role here, can take. You know, you originally asked me about the American Revolution. The leaders like John Adams and George Washington, what they were against was any form of lawlessness, even if it was targeted at the enemy. They were against tarring and feathering Tories. They were against assaulting the Tory public officials. They were against burning private property. It's just hard to imagine how that is uh, ever justified. They were against lynching. They were against vigilantism. They were against theft. They were against rape. They were against the kinds of things that happen on the margins of this kind of violent type of action when there's other forms that are available, this kind of direct action that Dr. Howard talked about. And, you know, Jamil, as um, I've been sort of covering this thing, one of the things, one of the questions that crossed my mind a few weeks ago is how many Americans die die by police every year? In other words, how many American deaths by police are there? And it turns out that there's no actual formal database of it. Uh, uh, and uh, as I looked around, I found one person had kind of tried to do a database using a, using a pretty good, pretty solid methodology. And then that 538, the Nate Silver Driven Stats website, had, had kind of sampled it and fact-checked it and found it to be pretty accurate. In other words, they, they didn't check all every single number, every single thing. But, you know, based on the kind of core sample they took, they, you know, they had set up pretty high confidence in his number. Well, this number was 1,000 a year. A thousand people every year die by police in one way or another, die in police custody, get shot by police, whatever. And to me, that's a horrifying number. And I'm sure if we break it down, if we analyze it, the preponderance of those people, a preponderance of those people will be people of color. They'll be blacks and Latinos. Um, but in some ways, I'm I'm just appalled to be living in a country where a thousand people die that way every year. And and. It, it kind of does get back to the point, maybe we should just get mad about that. And I mean, without letting go of the fact that, yes, there's incredible racial disparities in incarceration and in violence by the police and stuff like that. But at some point or other, I don't know, does John have a point that at some point we've got to get together around all this? So let's take that number at face value and accept that that's true, that a thousand people die a year by police um, through police violence. That would be 14,000 people since September 11th. So we've had more people killed by police in America than people died in the September 11th terrorist attacks. And American soldiers died in Iraq and Afghanistan since then. 
And I think that puts it into real perspective what the how grave this problem is for everybody. Yes, it's a great problem for everybody. But the fact remains that of those people who are killed by police is an absolute an absolute number of those people are white because there are more white people in America. But there is a greater proportion of black and brown people who are killed among those numbers. And it still remains true that blacks are between two and eight times more likely to be killed by police than whites. And this is statistical data that goes back to the 1960s through the early 2000s, that even though this is a problem that affects everybody, it affects a particular population more than other people. And I think this is why you're seeing, you know, that white people have been killed by police, too. But you don't really see the types of, you know uprising that you know in white communities surrounding this you still see it in black communities first because it's what happens to us more and you know i always reminded that of of the um quote i'm going to paraphrase you know if they come for us in the morning they're coming for you in the evening and if white people want to get on board with this right now i encourage you to because it's coming for you too it's already been happening to you as well just as it happens to us I don't think that it's necessary to separate race and class. I don't think it's necessary to treat those things as as distinct because as both Ashley and Eric have pointed out, they're not. And um, a professor I had at Trinity, Professor Devarian Baldwin, made a really great made a really great statement in class one day. He explained. He said that race is how class is lived. That we attach class and class assumptions to people based on the color of their skin. And that you so for black and brown people, you can't separate those things. You can't separate you can't separate gender and class. You can't separate gender and race. And one of the things I wrote about in the piece was how black women who are killed by police don't get the same amount of attention that black men get when you know, when when they're killed by police. So, you know, you have to kind of keep those things together. All right. We're going to thank Jamil Ragland, uh, Eric Patterson, and Ashley Howard, our three guests here today. Special thanks to Betsy Kaplan, who pulled this show together, everybody else who helped out. We will be back tomorrow with the nose 